21 through 39 is one day, one 24-hour day in the life of Jesus. Right? Start it, you could start it early in the morning and then go a full 24 hours into that next morning on where it, where it ends. And that's actually what's happening here in 21 through 39. Now, it's a larger section, and I'm not going to unpack all the issues that we have here, right? There, you might leave thinking, oh, Sean, you should have said more about this, or you could have said more about this. I'm not going to unpack all that. We'll, we'll get to more of these issues even as we work through the book of Mark. But what I want to do is highlight the main idea of the text, because something significant is happening in this beginning stage in Jesus's ministry that I hope that you will see and will draw your attention to. So first, you can see this in your outline, the authority of Jesus over unclean spirits. The authority of Jesus over unclean spirits. So look with me now at 21 through 28. 21 through 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished and immediately teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately... There was in there, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So the setting now moves here from Jesus' authority in first calling these disciples, calling the followers to come be fishers of men. To the disciples now joining him in Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, entering the synagogue, and Jesus was teaching. So, so here, here's the scene. Jesus is in the synagogue. It's, it's a Sabbath day. There's probably, he's probably there early Saturday morning when Jesus arrives, and he begins teaching. The synagogue was the place where Jews would gather for worship. Right? This is distinct from the temple in Jerusalem. The service consisted of a time of prayer, praise, the reading of God's word, the reading of scripture, and then instruction from the scriptures. That's a very similar pattern to even what we do today in a church. In Luke 4, as was his custom, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And then he showed how he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament prophecies. It was a common practice in Jesus, of Jesus to, to explain the scriptures, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, to call people to repentance and what he talked about, the gospel. Now, we aren't told here in Mark what he talked about. But we do know that his teaching came with great authority. The emphasis here is on what Jesus was doing and how he did it and its effect on others rather than on what he said. Verse 21, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Verse 22, and they were astonished at what? At his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. 
Verse 27, and they were all amazed, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. The response of those around him was amazement, astonishment. They were in awe. They were struck to the very core because Jesus' teaching was different. He didn't teach like the scribes. He spoke with greater authority than the experts in the law. In speaking with authority, his, his words probably brought great clarity, persuasion, urgency, and his words would have been compelling. He didn't preach of his own opinions. He didn't preach of his own preferences, but he proclaimed God's word to the people. That's what he did. And in that day, the scribes were primarily Pharisees. They were interpreters and teachers of the law. The scribes would stand up and quote other rabbis. Their interpretation of the law built up their own traditions to serve themselves. Right? So they stand up and build their traditions so that you can serve yourself with it. In doing, that's what the scribes did. Jesus wasn't teaching like that. He was teaching God's word and had authority in doing so. So here, in the, in the middle of the synagogue, in the middle of Jesus' teaching, now get the picture. Here he is, he's teaching in the middle of the synagogue. There's an outcry. A man with an unclean spirit cries out in verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's as though an outburst from a man with an unclean spirit interrupts Jesus' teaching. Right? He's just in the middle of explaining God's word and there's this outcry. And it highlights here that there's a spiritual battle taking place. Jesus arrives on the scene to set captives free, to rescue and redeem those from the domain of darkness, to give spiritual sight to those who are blinded by the God of this world. He arrives to disarm demonic rulers and authorities and put them to, to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. The kingdom of God, this is what's going on here. The kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ was invading the adversary's territory. With the arrival of Jesus comes opposition. Opposition from the enemy, from a spiritual enemy, which shows that there is a spiritual battle taking place. We're going to see, as we work through the book of Mark, we're going to see various conflicts that will arise in the life of Jesus. And it begins with, it, it begins with opposition from the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil. And then we're going to see this conflict play itself out in the Pharisees and the, and the scribes and from those in the world. Jesus' authority is recognized by this man with an unclean spirit. This man is influenced by, he's dominated by, he's controlled by, at some level, this, this unclean spirit, this demon. He wants nothing to do with Jesus. And here he was in the synagogue. We're not exactly how this came to be. Or in what way he gave the enemy a foothold. This doesn't mean that he was any more evil than, than someone else or any more wicked 
than someone not controlled by an unclean spirit? But whatever the case, he has an unclean spirit, literally a defiled spirit, a defiled or unclean spirit. I think this is remarkable because I was initially planning on preaching through 45, 40 through 45, and it begins, Mark begins in highlighting here this unclean spirit, and then he's going to end this episode in 40 through 45 with a man of leprosy who is unclean ceremonially. Lord, you can make me clean. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that next week. So here he is. He he cries out, what do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us? Demons know that their time is short. They want nothing to do with Jesus. And then he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's been observed that this is an attempt to control him or get the upper hand on Jesus, because it was commonly understood in ancient culture that if you knew their name, if you knew their name and could, and could say it, you could have control. You have authority over them. But Mark also may be mentioning the fact that the demons recognize Jesus and are therefore confirming his identity. They know who he is. He is the Son of God. He is the one who acts with the power and authority of Jesus, of God, and silence. We see Jesus' authority as he rebukes him and tells him to be silent and then come out of him. Jesus speaks and the demon obeys. With a word of command, the unclean spirit is cast out of the man. And again, the people are amazed. And they question what they just witnessed, saying, what is this? What is this? What? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So here's the point. Here's the point. The saving reign of God was invading the present darkness of this world. The ending of of the reign of Satan in an already not yet sense. The war will be won on the cross, but the battle rages on. The saving reign of God was was becoming a reality as Jesus taught the people and as he displayed his authority over evil spirits. So, you might wonder to yourself, what what do we take away from this? Well, here's one application I want to at least draw from this. Okay, a lot more could be said. One application. We could fall into two extremes. When When we think of demons, we think of unclean spirits. Two extremes. On the one hand, we could see demons everywhere. And every sickness, every trial, every tragedy, every difficulty is because of Satan and the demonic. And when it comes to sin, a person would even say, well, the devil made me do it. And therefore, there's no responsibility for our actions. Or we live in complete fear. If there is the second extreme, the other extreme on the other end of the spectrum is that we live as if there is no spiritual battle. We deny the existence of the cosmic powers, powers, 
and spiritual forces of evil. We deny the existence of Satan and unclean spirits. We deny that which we can't see. And therefore, we live as practical atheists. And that's probably more common in our Western world, I imagine. A balanced and more biblical approach, I would suggest, at a minimum, is to recognize that Satan and his forces are real and active in the world. They can have a destructive influence over people. They can bring harm and personal torment and destruction. 1 Peter 5.8, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 2 Corinthians 4, he blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Revelation 12.10, he is the accuser of the brothers. A balanced approach acknowledges that there are three forces, three forces at work that can influence people and keep them in bondage. According to Ephesians 2, we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We could be influenced by the world, the devil, and our flesh. The world is external, right? So that would be the, the circumstances around you, the world. Our flesh is internal, God our own internal, our own inclination to do evil and to reject and rebel against God. And the devil then takes these and he uses them against us. There are three ways or three areas where Satan then and the spiritual forces of evil attack. Deception, number one, deception. Number two, accusation. And number three, temptation. These are three basic realities. Satan is the deceiver, he's the accuser, and he is the tempter. And we can resist and oppose him and his forces through the word of God. With the authority of the word of God, we speak truth to ourselves and we speak truth and we stand on that truth. We put on the whole armor of God. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb by the word of our testimony, by resisting and by resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ for us. Okay, so that's, that's how we can at least apply this to our lives as we see the authority of Jesus over unclean spirits. Second, my second point is this, the authority of Jesus over sickness. So notice verses 29 through 34. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak 
because they knew him. So Jesus' fame spreads everywhere throughout the regions of Galilee. And I imagine, I imagine that they heard the story, word, they got word of what happened in the synagogue. Right? So people shared the stories of what they saw and what they heard. Did you see or hear of what Jesus did in the synagogue and how he, how he just cast out this unclean spirit? Did you hear of what he was proclaiming with his words, his teaching? It was not like the scribes. It was different. Something unique was happening in Jesus. And so, so Jesus, he, he leaves the synagogue from this full day, I imagine an exhausting day, and it's still the same day. He enters Simon, who we know as Peter. He enters Simon and Andrew's house with the other disciples. And, and then he arrives, and Simon's mother-in-law is ill with a fever. I think sometimes we forget this detail in the story. Peter was married. Did you catch that? He has a mother-in-law. She has a fever. And they tell Jesus what's going on with her. In the ancient world, many considered a fever as having more significance than just being a symptom of some illness or disease or simply being a a sickness in and of itself. It had theological significance. Having a fever had theological significance. According to Leviticus 26.16 and Deuteronomy 28.22, it was part of the covenant curses. It was punishment sent by God upon those who violated the covenant. Right? He said, this is what's going to happen to you. This is what Israel would have, would have known or, or been used to. Now in Mark, we don't have any details, any other details, other than that Peter's mother-in-law is ill with a fever. The text doesn't tell us why, only that she's sick and they tell Jesus about it. Jesus then, Jesus then goes to her, takes her by the hand and, and lifts her up and, and the fever is gone. My little, now, I wish right now that Jesus was here, that he'd go over to my house and take my little girl by the hand and make the fever be gone. Right? She's had a fever. How ironic that I'm preaching about Jesus healing someone from a fever and my daughter is sick with a fever. Here's what's unique about this situation. Did you catch what she did? The fever is gone and then she began to serve them. Do you see that? In other words, the healing resulted in full, complete restoration, evident by the fact that she's able to return to her normal duties. Jesus displays his authority and power over sickness. And the day doesn't stop there. That evening at sundown, Sabbath is now over. The people can now bring their sick to Jesus without violating the Sabbath command. Right? So they're coming at sundown. It was during that time, after the meal, at the end of the day, the people show up. All right, now I'm not breaking the Sabbath. Boom, I'm going to that house. Now they have this great crowd of people gathered at the door. The whole city was gathered together. 
You can imagine it, Jesus at the house and hundreds of people are flocking to him because his fame has spread. And as soon as they have opportunity to do so, they want Jesus to heal them. I don't know about you, but after a long day of work, what do we want to do? I want to go home and rest. We want to go home and rest. We want to be done for the day. And yet here's Jesus taking time to heal them. He didn't drive. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He didn't drive the people away. He didn't drive them away. He displayed his mercy and compassion upon them and for them, and he brought deliverance and restoration to them. Again, we see here that, that he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus didn't want his identity revealed by the demons. Jesus doesn't want their testimony. The religious leaders would eventually try to associate Jesus with the demons. Right? We're going to see that in Mark. And Jesus doesn't want his identity revealed yet, perhaps, so they won't view him as merely a, a miracle worker. Right? His time had not yet come for him to fully reveal who he is. Because notice, notice our third point. I think this is quite fascinating. We see here the third point, the priorities of Jesus. So notice verses 35 through 39. 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, and I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Here's Jesus. He's had an exhausting day. Instead of sleeping in, which is what I might do, he gets up early in the morning, sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So you early risers, Jesus is up as well. He goes to a desolate place. He goes to a wilderness where he can be alone with God. He gets away from the distractions of this world, and he gets up early and prays. And by rising early, Jesus is making personal time with God a high priority. This shows his complete dependence upon God through prayer, that God is his source of strength and guidance. And Simon and the others, they eventually find him. They're searching for him. This was an urgent pursuit of Jesus. And it seems, it seems as though they're upset with him. They're, they're searching for him. They're upset. And it sounds like when you look at the words of Simon here, it's almost as if it's a rebuke. I wish I heard the tone of his voice. Everyone's looking for you. In other words, what are you doing here? This is not where you should be. You need to be with the crowds. People need healing. People need a touch. People need you, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Let's go. 
let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Jesus is saying to Peter and his followers, it's time to move on. There's work to be done. I've come to preach. This shows the priority of Jesus. His priority and purpose and mission was to proclaim the gospel, to preach of the kingdom of God. And that's what he does. And along the way, he heals people. He casts out demons. But he prioritizes the preaching of the word. And I find that fascinating. So what do we take away from this? What are the implications for us? Learning from the disciples and the crowd, the question that we need to ask is this. What are we chasing Jesus for? What are we pursuing Jesus for? In our pursuit of Jesus, in making Jesus the priority in our, in our lives, we could be in danger of chasing the miracles like the crowd and the disciples. He could have gone to that which was popular and have his fame spread. He could have stayed there. We could have a tendency to chase the miracles and not the Messiah or the message. Are we seeking that which is temporary or that which is eternal? Are we seeking the healer or the preacher? Now imagine, I imagine that they, there's a both and element here, right? There's a both and answer to this and not necessarily pitting the one against the other. But one takes the priority. You see, what's often missed is what Jesus prioritizes. What's often missed and what we don't think of is Jesus, the teacher and the preacher, who brings a word that impacts our eternal state as we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ for us. I was talking to a missionary that we support here in the U.S. recently. He was telling me that this is a common problem on the coasts. He said that Jesus is pursued because of what people think that he can do for them in their job, in their sports, in their if Jesus, and in their future. If Jesus can give them success, and the upper hand against the competition, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, right, like a shot in the arm, like, like a steroid, then yes, let's add him to our life. Do you see the danger in that? We could be in danger of seeking after Jesus for what he can do for us physically or financially or emotionally in the present rather than spiritually. We could be in danger of seeking after Jesus for that which is temporary rather than eternal. We could be in danger of seeking God for success 
without actually submitting to him and surrendering to him as the king and authority in our lives. Now, with that being said, we should pursue him. We should prioritize our relationship with him. We should go to him with our various needs and our various requests, like children who, who run to loving parents, right? They run to loving children, loving parents. They tell them about their struggles, their trials, their challenges, their difficulties, the tragedies that they're facing, their pain, their failures, right? We run to loving parents that, that do that. We, we cry out to them. We go to them for expressing our, our successes and our joys, Right? So we, we should pursue him. We should let God know where we're at, how we're doing, what's going on in our lives. Seek his guidance, seek his help, seek his strength. Because the second point of application here is that the success of Jesus' ministry, of his mission, depended upon his trust and reliance upon God. He's completely dependent upon God. He depended for us. He drew his strength and guidance from God. It's easy for us to be busy with life, with raising our children, work, church, recreation, that we forget. We forget about our relationship with God. I'm so busy. We've got all these things on our plate that we forget about our relationship with God and that we were created to be in relationship with God. In fact, in the busyness of life, we are prone to push God to the periphery of our lives that we don't make time for God at all. So we could fall to the other end of that spectrum, pursue God for the wrong reasons, or not pursue him at all. Well, I don't want to pursue him for the wrong reasons, so I guess I shouldn't pursue him at all. No. What we need to do is rely upon him more. We need to go to him from the very beginning and give him the highest priority in our lives. So, so ask yourself, right? as you look at Jesus' life, ask yourself, is and I'm asking myself this, wrestling with this myself and applying this to my life, is prayer the pattern of my life? Is it really, Sean? Is time with God the priority in my life? Is it really? Or I just squeeze it in at the end of the day. Is proclaiming who he is the highest priority in my life? Is that my mission? Is that my goal to proclaim Jesus? Or am I just proclaiming myself? So that's an application question we we wrestle with. We ask ourselves. we, We confess the areas in which we're not doing that. Third point of application. Last point of application. Jesus's priority was his relationship with God and the preaching of the word. And while he did this, 
He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He brought healing and restoration to the lost and to the hurting. There are times then, right? We've got to be balanced here. There are times then when we do both and should do both. We display compassion for the hurting. We pray for the sick. We help alleviate the physical suffering that people experience. Right? So we, we do those things. We, we don't neglect those things. But the ultimate desire is to see people rescued from eternal suffering through the proclamation of the gospel. So they might have, catch this, they might have physical and spiritual health forever in a new heaven and new earth. That's why we as a church focus on the priority of the gospel. And that's why we have other ministries which show the compassion of Christ. And that's why we should have other ministries that display the love and compassion and grace of Jesus Christ. We can use those opportunities to share the gospel and give them the hope of eternal life in Christ. So, let's continue Right? I say this to remind us, let's continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's, let's proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and his word and make that the priority in our church and continue to do so while not neglecting meeting the needs, the physical needs of others. Let's continue to make it a priority in our own lives to pursue a deeper relationship with Jesus through personal time with him each day. Let's encourage one another in this as we seek to know Christ and make him known. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks when we think of Jesus and his authority over unclean spirits, over sickness, as he begins to bring the reality of the kingdom, as he exercises his lordship over all things. We're not left in darkness. We're not left in blindness. But he came and brought grace to us. That though we were once blind, now we see. Though we were once in darkness, now we are in the kingdom of light. We have been transferred to the kingdom of your beloved Son. And we praise you for that this morning. We do pray. We pray for those who are hurting. We pray for those who are sick again. We pray for those who are going through various trials. Would they be reminded of the ultimate hope of a new heaven and new earth where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, no more death, no more disease, no more sickness, no more tears. Or to that
We look forward to that day. And so as we wait for that day, would you enable us to continue to pursue a relationship with you, continue to seek you, continue to proclaim your word and the amazing grace that we have experienced in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.